Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. Riddle me this. Will you need your hinds feet in heaven? And tell me if you can. Will you be given the wings of an eagle so you can fly to heaven? Let's get this started with a kick, shall we?
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's edition of the End Time Tribune. Boy, this episode has been long in the coming, for sure. Uh, Brian and I have did massive work on this very topic before, but people were asking us about uh, questions about it. And uh, we've had so much information come out, and everybody needs to realize that uh, I've been working on this, uh, oh my goodness, for 20 years. And it was Brian that came along and stumbled across what is now known as the Nice model. He brought it to my attention, and it absolutely blew me away. So that was the first time we did a show on this very topic, and uh, it was really one of the wonderful things. Uh, that has occurred since Brian and I have gotten together. Uh, but just absolutely amazing when when he sent it to me. Um, I didn't quite know how to take it, and uh, I think it took me a couple of days because of my job at the time before I read it. And I read it, and I was just, oh my goodness, uh, the Lord has finally showed us how this is going to work out. So we need to get Brian in the saddle and ask him how he stumbled across this and happened to uh, uh, connect the dots and uh, get it passed over to me because it's been, man, oh my goodness. I think it was four or five years ago when we did that show, and to be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen, I can't even remember what format it was on. It might might have been uh, WI2C Radio. It might have been the Prophetico. I really can't remember. Um, of course, we had two Prophetico channels, uh, but uh, it's it's just been too long ago for me to remember. So, Brian Wire, where, when, why, and how did you stumble across this uh, Nice model? All right, sorry about that. For some reason, the mute button decided to go somewhere else on the screen. Uh well, I would say stumbling onto it was late in the game because I had already been previously to that at least a good year, year and a half, if not two years, working out the cycle of uh, cosmic catastrophes that have happened throughout our universe. Not to even mention knowing full well that there were events where the, uh, well, it kind of goes back to that infamous, uh, Bible refers to it as wandering stars. Plato referred to it as... Uh, planets leaving their courses or the stars leaving their courses. So uh, that's essentially it, because when you start breaking down all the ancient varied uh, stories and lore that happens throughout specific times, you begin to realize that they're talking about a whole lot more than just the um, infamous uh, gods and goddesses as in the, um, you know, standing around on the ground and running around and doing all that, you start to realize they're talking about a major celestial event. And we know that one of these celestial events had massive repercussions. When you all consider what they found out there by Turkey with the Denkaru, uh underground cavern system. So that's, that's initially how I stumbled into it. I mean, I had already been in the midst of retranslating an entire verse in Job because I realized it said something far different than what your uh, modern-day translators are going to tell you. And it was talking about, well, this very topic when you begin to break all of it down. Well, you know, the first big obstacle you come into, Brian, uh, 
is that people really just can't fathom in their mind uh, that the Lord can say a whole lot more uh, than just one message with one phrase. And it amazes me that 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 people don't don't realize that they don't uh, they don't understand what's going on. Um, it's so very hard, uh, you know, even for you and I uh, to come to grips with. Okay, now we've tore apart the Hebrew. Okay, now it's time to do the Greek. And when we're done with that, I'll scratch my head and say, "Well, I wonder what's in that verse alphanumerically," and tear that apart for another week. Then turn around right right back around and have somebody ask me, well, what's there alphanumerically in the Greek? So just that alone, people can't seem to wrap their minds around the simple fact that, especially with Hebrew, you can take one word and you can say five different things for it. Um, people don't realize that uh, you know most Hebrew words are at maximum three letters long. Oh, that's nothing. Uh, try stumbling across... Uh, what is obviously what no academic theologian is going to relate to the people. Uh, we can just take Matthew 24, for example. Uh, there are seven letter words in there that are closed compound words in Hebrew. Yet when you go to their popular websites and ask these academics, they'll tell you there's no such thing. So it is so difficult for us to uh, get across the simple fact that yes, verses like uh, Luke chapter 11 verse 30 is true, and it does certainly mean something physical. It certainly means that this will be a marvelous sign that we can see, and it's certainly coming, no doubt about that. But when you try to go the next step and try to explain to people, well… You need to understand that God doesn't like to confuse people, and there's only one king star in the heavens, not only in place but in time, because it doesn't matter where you go. If you go to ancient Rome, if you go to ancient Babylonia, it doesn't matter where you go, and when you go there, there's one single king star. So when God tells you that, his sign for his son is a celestial object, and that object is real, and he says it's going to come, and when it does come, it's going to scare the living daylights out of you. I, I, don't, I don't understand how that's any more difficult to believe one of the most simplistic uh, phrases that he ever spoke. Lazarus, come forth. I mean, surely that's a much more difficult phrase to believe. Bet they say they do. Bet when you read a verse, you know, when you read uh, Luke chapter eleven verse thirty, uh, they they think it well. It can't mean that because if if it meant that, well, of course we would all die. No celestial event like that could actually happen, or God would kill us. And there's another obstacle, Brian. It's a major obstacle to get through people's heads that you don't need oxygen to survive, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego proved that thousands of years ago. 
And that often shocks people when I say that. What do you mean? They were supposed to be burnt. No, that was only half their, their problem. Why don't you read the historical text and we'll just go to Chicago and learn about what happened to the Great Chicago Fire and the firestorm? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you need to get up to speed on this. It suffocates you way before it burns you. That's what a firestorm is. It creates a roar from the suction as it consumes so much oxygen. So you actually lose your oxygen, you pass out, and you don't even feel the fire. Yeah, you tell people that, and they just don't believe it, but it's true. The simple fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have oxygen in that furnace, that's by far marvelous. And he gives you a hint of that whenever he comes out, or whenever they come out, and God plainly tells you that you couldn't even smell the scent of smoke on them. Well, of course you couldn't because it was under vacuum. They were they were in a vacuum. Smoke couldn't get to them. So he did come out and tell you, but it, it's like people don't believe it. But this is – here, let me say this another way before I read it. The person speaking this is who Jupiter represents in the heavens. Does that surprise you that Jesus is talking about himself? Because uh, I hate to rain on everybody's party. This is common knowledge, Brian. It's common knowledge that Christ always referred to himself as what? The Son of Man. <laughs> and it blows me away how people uh, people reject it. But here, let's take a read. We'll, of course, the accompanying verse, just uh, like it, is in Matthew 24, verse 30. So that's why I decided to pull out everybody's linchpins, you know. Everybody, you were aware that this sign is also mentioned in Luke chapter 30, or verse 30 from chapter uh, 11. Now, I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to read the one from Matthew 24. Okay. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, he's coming right out into the open and giving you a clue as to when his sign is Going to be seen. And of course, the popular one, Matthew 24, verse 30. You'll take note, they're both 30 verses. Did I confuse everybody? Because it's easily to confuse people. This, the first one was Luke chapter 11, verse 30. This is Matthew 24, verse 30. So they should be pretty easy to memorize because they're both 30s. But, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And yet, the simple fact of what he is obviously stating is completely thrown out. It's completely thrown out. Completely. 
So when we are looking, like I said, I have been looking for this very mechanical thing in astronomical terms for well, oh, well, almost three decades now. And I waited, and I waited, and sure enough, it was presented to me. And it is truly terrifying to contemplate. Because just so you all know, every astronomer, every single astrophysicist on this planet knows your window of life is 2%. If we go 2% closer to the sun, we burn. If we move away from the sun just 2%, we freeze. So our orbital parameters are absolutely critical to life. And if God starts playing pinball... With the sign that represents his son, you are in a world of hurt, ladies and gentlemen, because this is common knowledge. Everybody knows it. Jupiter is what saves us from most of our solar system's interlopers. Everybody knows this. When you look at these phrases in the news, the news will come out and plainly tell you that, well, if it wasn't for Jupiter, we'd have done been obliterated by an incoming comet or asteroid. They get caught in Jupiter's orbit, or they get thrown off by Jupiter's gravity, or of course, like Comet Chevy Lube Maker 9, which I like to call Jupiter's 21-gun salute, because it was a celestial sign, ladies and gentlemen, it really was. But Comet Chevy Lube Maker 9 broke into 21 fragments and slammed into Jupiter with no ill effect whatsoever. It had zero effects on Jupiter's orbit, its spin. It stood steadfast right where it's supposed to be. You take note that the proper calculations have already been done. The blast point for just one of those fragments was greater than the size of the Earth. So, you know, it's it's kind of tough to relay this information, Brian, that yes, uh, Jesus is talking about he's certainly going to come back. Okay, he is certainly going to set up his kingdom. He's certainly going to reign for a thousand years. Yeah, all that's true. But God is telling you that Jupiter is going to come. And when he means come, the Greek is quite clear. And, of course, you can check the Delich Hebrew if you want to, of course, and it says the same thing. It means to... uh Come, as in in close proximity, as in to approach, as in if this happens, 
all your famous astronomers that are on TV, they're going to be literally terrified to death because they know what it will mean. It will mean our doom. So, with that in mind, let's let's ask Brian to explain this this Nice model, what they've proven mathematically must have happened early in our solar system. Are all these historic, uh, historians just liars? Oh my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been working on the Crucible Project, and you need to understand why they all lie and say that Alexander never went to Jerusalem. You know why they say that? They say that based off one single thing, that they showed Alexander the book of Daniel. They lie and say that's impossible. Was it written yet? Oh, yes, it was. And all of you need to take that to the bank. I bet you all were shocked to hear that. Yeah, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Alexander got to read the book of Daniel. And Alexander knew exactly what he's going to do. That is the singular reason why Alexander didn't obliterate Jerusalem. Because, you see, he called upon Jerusalem to help him in his siege of Tyre. Now, you don't have to like this. Your academic theologians have lied to you. Oh, yes, Daniel had already been written. Oh, yes, it had been. And Alexander was shown the text of what he was going to do. And then Alexander must have realized why those curious silver shields had intervened so he didn't need volunteer troops from Jerusalem. Why wouldn't a preacher want you to know that when Alexander went to Jerusalem, they showed him a copy of Daniel? So, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, God can say six, ten, twelve different things with one verse because – you're regulated to reading it in English if you are not familiar with what God wrote it in. Let me explain something to you. He wrote it in Hebrew, and he wrote it in Greek, and he did that for a singular reason. There's too much data to be contained in one tongue. That can't be done. What we really need, of course, is the Bible in Babylonian tongue. Let me state that so you understand it. If we knew the one language they were speaking as they built the Tower of Babel, then you could do what God has done with the Hebrew and Greek with one language. Then you could do it, but you can't do it now. So with that in mind, Brian, why don't you describe to us this, this Nice model? Does it say that you know, just one planet moves orbit, or just just give us a rundown of what. Now, this is what the scientific mathematical equations prove to have happened. 
So, Brian, you've got the mic. Uh, tell us about this Nice model. Well, to add into that, too, and folks, this Nice model is accepted. Uh, fact, no, they don't call this uh, theoretical anymore. Uh, you know, just to add a little bit, something on top of it there, too, where Matthew brought up concerning Alexander the Great. I mean, folks, you realize that they've tried to um, fool people by stating there's multiple authors to the book of Isaiah, and that was only penned later. And so, therefore, Cyrus the Great couldn't have been written in beforehand. And I guess blah, 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 because that's really what it comes down to. It's all just nonsense. But anyways, on to this niece model. Uh, to give the uh, beginning little definition here, the niece model proposes the migration of the giant planets from an initial compact configuration into their present positions long after the dissipation of the initial protoplanetary gas disk in the way it differs from earlier models of the solar system's formation. The planetary migration is used in dynamical situations of the solar system to explain historical events, including the late heavy bombardment of the inner solar system, the formation of the Oort cloud, and the existence of populations of small solar system bodies, including the Kuiper Belt, the Neptune and Jupiter Trojans, numerous resonant trans-Neptunian objects dominated by Neptune, its successes at reproducing a Many of the observed features of the solar system means that it was widely accepted as the current most realistic model of the solar system's early evolution. Although it is not universally favored among planetary scientists, let's see here. Later research revealed a number of differences between the original Nice model's predictions and observations of the current solar system. For example, the orbits of the terrestrial planets and the, or and the asteroids leading to its modification. Now, as you go on, what planets is it talking about here that have been moved from their course? All right. Scientists understood so little about the formation of Uranus and Neptune that Levinson states the possibilities concerning the formation of Uranus and Neptune are almost endless. However, it is suggested that the planetary systems evolved in the following manner. Planetesimals at the disk inner edge occasionally pass through gravitational encounters, and the outermost giant planet, which changes most planetesimals' orbits. The planets scatter the majority of the small icy bodies that they encounter inward, exchanging angular momentum with the scattered objects to the planets move outwards in response, preserving the angular momentum of the systems. These planetesimals then similarly scatter off the next planet they encounter, successfully moving the orbits of Uranus, Neptune, and Saturn outwards. So to get the gist of that there, folks, you know, basically breaking this down, the four giant planets that are affected, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Now, there's a little bit more that goes into this. And to a degree, it's uh, which direction do we want to whip it in? Because, well, maybe that's a good way of putting it. Because it's almost as if a um, something was whipped across the uh, galaxy causing these patterns as well. And That's right. Can I jump in here now? 
Yeah, I guess I was going to put something else in here, but I'll let you well do what you need to do, um, and I'll bring it in afterwards. Okay, well, um, I'm going to send you a link. It goes straight to it. Okay, Brian? And I will elaborate on something else uh, while you look into that. Okay? Because this is uh, this is key critical. It's just the easiest way to do it. But ladies and gentlemen, Brian just made reference that there was something else that was causing massive problems. But you take note that this whole operation was, of course, to clean up all that debris. So what God did was use the gas giants, the four gas giants, to sweep up the uh, well, the debris that were going to be just like I mentioned before, was going to be like playing pinball in the solar system. So God had to protect us. So he had to clean up that stuff before uh, these bolides would come in and absolutely wipe us off the face of the planet. Now, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want you to just think about Leviticus chapter 16. Back of your mind, you might want to bring it up and get ready to read it over it when we go to break, because that's important. Because all of you have been taught by these self-serving shepherds. I mean, the best way to put it is to describe them as they are. They're S.S. shepherds. You realize what they've done to you. They never wanted you to know that Leviticus chapter 16 is not done yet. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ did in fact fulfill the sacrifice that was made in Leviticus chapter 16 to the Lord our God. But there was another sacrifice that day. So, Brian, you've already made mention that there must have been some larger object. What have they found in relationship uh, concerning uh, the Nice model? What have they found? That's a great question. I have no idea. Well, the Nice model plainly points out that, ladies and gentlemen, we're missing a, a gas giant. We should have five gas giants. Mathematically, that's how our system works with the gravitational forces involved. Now, we're going to stop right there with that part, and Brian kind of took me by surprise when he said that, but he put it in a very good way because, well, we can't seem to find it, but mathematically, the Nice model plainly screams there had to be a fifth gas giant. Now, right now, we've only got Jupiter... Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus, that, that's it. And I put them in that order for a reason, by the way. 
because the Nice model says some peculiar things about Neptune and Uranus. doesn't say it. I mean, the math speaks for itself. When math speaks, you just have to swallow it. So, Brian, you know, you have done a lot of historical research. You've, you've made reference to these, these instances uh, where, well, some form of celestial pinball was going on. Do you want to elaborate on that for us? Well, that is sort of the point, and to a degree, that's why I purposely answered things the way I did previously. Because ultimately, I'd say until recently, they had no idea what caused this. Now, the simple one to first start with, which everybody knows about the story, and yet, I do have to chuckle at some of the solutions to the story that have come along as of lately. Because no matter what, the the very first infamous historical reference to something being wrong that everybody has heard about time and time again, and it's been brought out in varied entertainment formats and all kinds of good stuff. But folks, understand this. This is real. And the text that actually support the story that is passed along here have been discovered in Egypt. So the Egyptians knew about something. This is from the infamous story from Plato on Atlantis. So long hearing this said, what do you mean? I mean to say, he replied, that in mind you are all young. There is no old opinion handed down among you by ancient tradition, nor any science which is hoary with age. And I will tell you the reason of this. There have been, and there will be again, many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. There is a story which even you have preferred, preserved, that once upon a time, Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked the steeds in his father's chariot because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father, burnt up all that was upon the earth, and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. Now this has the form of a myth, but really signifies a declination of the bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens, and a great conflagration of things upon the earth recurring at long intervals of time. When this happens... Those who live upon the mountains and in dry and lofty places are more liable to destruction than those who dwell by rivers or on the seashore. And from this calamity, the Nile, who is our never-failing Savior, saves and delivers us. All right, folks, that is your most famous, well-known variation that is telling you exactly what we just spoke about. He brings up in here the movement of these celestial bodies getting thrown off course, things going off kilter in the universe, therefore on top of it causing massive problems on the earth. Now, of course, in most of your modern day circles, nobody will tell you about this because, you know, folks, if you like it or not, 
most people don't seem to realize that good old Darwin, when he started running around with his um, make-believe evolution garbage, his um, forerunner that had prompted his thinking, and they were buddies, well, in order to get that those gears set in motion to convince everybody that the Bible wasn't real and all this other nonsense, you know, we can thank the French Revolution for all this garbage. Sorry, that's where it traces to. Because that guy traces to there as well. Thing is, is, in order to get the ball rolling in that direction, they first had to do away with the flood. Therefore, they had to make what? They had to play around with geology. You know, it takes a thousand years for a piece of sand to slowly blow across an inch. And therefore, it takes 50 billion years for a plate to move on the planet. Blah, blah, blah. They had to do away with these things happening all throughout history, just like a multitude of ancient text, not to even mention a multitude of, let's see, tablets that record the events. Um, you have the infamous, famous uh, Chaldean tablets all throughout history that everybody knows about. Well, in those tablets, they also tell you the same story. Everybody runs around talking about the Anunnaki, you know, not going there. Point is, is within those Sumerian tales, the battle between Tiamat and all the other stuff going on in there, it's all telling the same story in a repetition. Now, if all these ancient tales, if the Bible is telling us these things at the same time, then just maybe there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And I had brought up last week the one piece, an old one of uh, the work I did at that time, because I'm not sure where the rest of that work is right now. At some point, I'll find it and start releasing it in mass. But the point is, like I stated before, if we've got these things being described all throughout history, when we have on top of it documented proof, I mean, let's go backwards to the infamous uh, Russian meteorite event that just happened a few years ago. They know full well what happens when these things come near our planet. When they crash into our planet, you know, we can go into the Chichalub impact crater because, uh-oh, and I'll let Matthew explain why I just said, uh-oh. Boy, that's loaded. Um, well, which direction do I want to go with this? Um, ladies and gentlemen, you can plainly... Take a look at the Chichalub impact crater. Now, the scientists will plainly tell you that that's what caused the death of the dinosaurs. It did not. That was the flood. That's because it's the same thing. You need to look at where it's at as far as the latitude is concerned away from the equator. And you need to understand what the Egyptian text told you 
that Brian plainly stated and read. You need to understand that at the end it said our great Savior, the Nile. They weren't talking about a river, ladies and gentlemen. They were talking about the Milky Way. I'll explain it to you. That bolide, that impact, beyond any shadow of a doubt, is what knocked us off our axis. It knocked us to a 66.6 degree axis. Did you hear me? Did I confuse you? Because I stated it correctly. Ladies and gentlemen, they want you, and they try to direct your mind to a 90 degree whenever talking about the inclination of the axis. Yes, it's 23.4. Everybody knows it, right? Well, why don't you try declinating that from the proper degree? The orbital plane is at zero, ladies and gentlemen. This planet is tilted 66.6 degrees off of the orbital plane. Now, God has left this here for us mathematically for a reason, and a very grandiose reason indeed. This fifth gas giant, well, just like all of our gas giants now, they give everything funny names. They call things with the uh, orbit that has been locked into sequence by Jupiter. They don't really want you to know what, it's, what it is, so they call them transjovian objects. Well, Jupiter has a great big family, and guess what? There's trans-Saturn objects. That's right. Trans-Uranus objects and trans-Neptunian objects because, like I said, God did this to save us, to protect us. So there's all kinds of asteroids that is kept within the boundaries of their gravitational field, and they save you. There is also objects that you could call trans, well, fifth gas giant. As a matter of fact, they're using these objects to plot its place in the heavens even as we speak. And they know where to look, ladies and gentlemen, because, well, the Nile. If we were in ancient Egypt, whenever they referred to the Nile in its singular form, they meant the Milky Way because everybody knows that the Niles tore up into 50 blue million pieces because, well, Egypt's name really means dire straits. Because uh, there is no one Nile that goes into the Mediterranean. It's called the Nile Delta. So when they spoke of the Nile, they meant the great river in the heavens, just like the Babylonians and everybody else. That was the Milky Way. I'm going to scare you, and well, I'm sorry about that. 
but encoded into what the Egyptians was stating in that ancient text that Brian read. They were prophetically speaking, of course, the center of the Milky Way, the Great River, because that's where the center of the universe lied, and they understood – well, let's speak biblically, shall we? They understood that he who sitteth upon the throne had saved them. He had overcome gravitational forces, and he had relocated the center of gravity to himself. Go to the text that Brian read and read it again and understand this time they were talking scientifically. Because when this event happened, we of course lost our center of gravity from the sun. The sun was not able to keep the gas giants nor us in place. So they understood that their salvation had came from the center of the Milky Way ga uh, uh, galaxy. The only problem is that center has been discovered to have terrible, terrible problems since 2010. It was released in the scientific community that the interstellar wind has moved north across the ecliptic into the sign of the restrainer. But perhaps maybe I confused you again. Into the constellation Ophiuchus. It's supposed to be in the sign of the cherub. Well, perhaps I confused you again. Ladies and gentlemen, go to the uh, Assyrian Lamassu. It's the Assyrian cherub that you see guarding their temples. I was just sharing on Facebook the other day how those massive structures have five legs, not four, but that's for another day. Ladies and gentlemen, something is seriously wrong with the Great River. Using these calculations, they've been able to determine what trans fifth gas giant objects would be in, and they're using it to calculate its place, and guess what? They've shared it with the whole world, and nobody seems to talk about it, especially these conspiratorial Christian theologians. These eschatologists don't want you to know that that means only one thing. This fifth gas giant must be at the other end of the heavens to be influencing the interstellar winds. It must be in the sign of the strike. And you can find this even published on space.com. So Brian, do you have access to that text that you read a few minutes ago? Can you reread that for us again, please? And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to realize what they're talking about here and how it finishes with the fact that the Great River was their savior. What they're telling you is that he who sitteth upon the throne relocated the center of gravity to himself so you wouldn't die. Because God wasn't trying to kill you. And there have also been and are going to be, because Revelation plainly states that one of the trans fifth gas giant objects is going to slam into us again because it's going to be set on fire and cast into the oceans. 
But that's not the first time we've encountered something from its orbit. Many people worship such a thing once a year. They have built a black box to protect it. And they doth worship it not only once a year, and not only is this planet 66.6 degrees off the orbital plane, they worship it 666 nautical miles from God's foundation stone. I'm sorry if what I'm telling you is scaring you, but we need to take another listen of that ancient text that Brian read, and you need to listen with scientific ears at what they're describing. Because if they say Nile, they're not referring to the Nile Delta. They're referring to the Milky Way. It's just that, ladies and gentlemen, back then they didn't have a word for it. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know it was it was actually the galaxy they were in, and it looked like a river because of clouds. And they knew it, it – well, how can a cloud be up there in the stars? They had no way to translate to you scientifically what a star was. They had no idea what a – well, how's a planet different? They had no idea. They both shone. So they had no idea why this cloud was up there up there in heaven. And if it's a cloud, it's got to be water, and that means a river. So, And it stays in place. It don't move. It's not a moving cloud. It stays in place. Now look, every ancient society called the Milky Way their great river. If you was in Babylon, they, you know, would call it the Euphrates. Or if you were in a different part, move a little bit, and they called it the Tigris. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why the Lord your God begins telling you about such things, about four great rivers. He's actually telling you a whole lot more than you can understand with just one language, but he's not lying to you. Brian, if you've got that text that you read before, please please read it again. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to add a little bit extra commentary. Salon hearing this said, what do you mean? I mean to say he replied that in mind you are all young. There is no old opinion handed down among you by ancient tradition, nor any science which is hoary with age. And I will tell you the reason of this. There have been and there will be again many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. This is a story which when, which even you have preserved that once upon a time, Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked his steeds in his father's chariot because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father, burnt up all that was upon the earth and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. Now, just one moment here. Never mind, I'll check that in a second. Because, well, look, folks, there's usually only one uh, person within mythology that uses a thunderbolt in the Greek. 
Now, this has the form of a myth, but really signifies a declination of the bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens and a great conflagration of things upon the earth recurring at long intervals of time when this happens. Those who live upon the mountains and in dry and lofty places are more liable to destruction than to those who dwell by rivers or on the seashore. And from this calamity, the Nile, who is our never-failing Savior, saves and delivers us. Now, as I said, I'm going to add a little commentary here because I would have to certainly uh, add in a little bit of more to this. Yes, all the ancient cosmologies, especially any of the major civilizations that have been known for their astronomy, the mandate of heaven, for instance, within China, folks, do you realize that they built their entire cities according to the layout of the heavens and using the middle course, setting rivers according to that celestial river? Yes, they did. Come over to South America, you have numerous cities that they did the same thing. Teotihuacan is a primary example. You begin to look into the Mayan and Aztec cosmologies. Uh, same story over and over and over again. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Multiple civilizations intentionally placed their cities in accordance in this very way. Yet, I'm going to add this. As in heaven, so shall it be on earth. Because rivers were affected when these disasters played out. And quite literally, um, I would almost have to call that part and parcel with the riddle of the Magi. Oh yeah, they had everything to do with uh, helping locate sources of water when these massive disasters would take place. Because, look folks, the work I've done in this department... There's one thing that's going to stand out among all of it. The Indus Valley Civilization, for instance, when it fell within its timeline. Well, there was a major cosmic event that went in tandem with this. And what happened there? They know full well now that the Indus changed its course. Let's talk about the Gahan. In the Arabic tongue, that translates to the crazy river. That's our modern-day Oxus River. Okay, why did I bring up those magi? Oh boy, because those magi knew how to chart these things that were happening in the heavens. They knew how to calculate them. And they go round about helping these civilizations pick up the pieces again, teach them how to, how to farm, where to set stuff up, how to build the buildings so they can survive, do this, that, and the other thing. Most notably, they knew where to look for sources of water. You see, they'd either ride around on horseback or even as we found evidence of all throughout the planet, they'd jump on boats, travel all over the world. Oh, yeah, they even showed up in South America. I mean, everybody knows about the infamous stories about the uh, great, big, tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys that showed up. I mean, there's multiple versions of that story. Um, one of them referred to him as Quetzalcoatl, Kula Khan, all kinds of different little 
ideas of this. I mean, that's why when the Spaniards showed up, they thought that their Magi friend had returned and he used that to his advantage to slaughter them. So to add a little bit of commentary onto what Matthew just asked me to bring up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you'll take note the links there that he went way out of his way not to say Jupiter. He went way out of his way uh, to put it in such a way, like Brian just brought up. He was struck down with a lightning bolt, but not by Jupiter. Even though you know it was Zeus, it had to be Zeus. So, ladies and gentlemen... Well, it's time for our break. Needless to say, ladies and gentlemen, you need to know, um, well, the rest of the story. You see, Phaeton was also a friend of a king, and this king profoundly mourned his death so much that he was turned into a swan and flew away. Ladies and gentlemen, the Nice model has mathematically proven that what we're talking about is in fact um, not only an historical event, but even the Egyptians plainly knew that this was going to happen again. So… With that in mind, uh, we're going to play one of our older breaks. It is Leviticus chapter 16 and Revelation 8. For surely they do go together. Leviticus 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself 
and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place, until he come out, and have made an atonement for himself, and for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord, and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock, and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, and their flesh, and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest, whom he shall anoint, 
and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel, for all their sins, once a year. And he did, as the Lord commanded Moses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 21. Ladies and gentlemen, know in your heart that you can precisely put the Day of Atonement on the Tribulation timeline utilizing Leviticus chapter 16 verses 12 through 16 and coupling it with Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 through 7. You are listening to the End Time Tribune. Dispel all cunningly devised fables concerning the pre-tribulational rapture. Revelation 8 And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's consider what the Lord our God just stated, because after this event, you need to understand that the book of Revelation is also speaking astronomically. And the seven stars that were given seven trumpets, you see that trumpet is literally a magnifying device for just the angel's voice. In this instance, it's referring to a planet's gravitational sphere of influence. The Lord, our God, will take these seven planets and do exactly what the ancients obviously knew had happened. You'll take note that the last three trumpets involve woes. In the heavens, that would be the father star, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Now, the Nice model loudly proclaims that um, it was Saturn that pulled Jupiter back out into its proper place, maintained it. At the same exact time, mathematically speaking, I'm going to read right from the press release from Arizona State University uh, from December uh, the 11th, 2007. So what I'm telling you is true. Like I said, this is straight from the University of uh, Arizona. In some 50% of all the initial models, Neptune and Uranus had exchanged places. In exchange of Uranus and Neptune would be consistent with models of their formation in a disk that had its surface dis density that declined with distance from the sun, which predicts that the masses of the planet should also be declined with distances from the sun. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I do read more scripture, I'm going to tell you something else. This was released in 2015, it was released on Space.com February the 12th, 2015. You see, they had an orbiter. The New Horizons went right by Pluto, and it recorded a strange thing in the heavens. It recorded that Pluto was not being orbited by its largest moon, its twin, of course, Charon. It's not what was happening. They were locked tightly, and they were going around each other. You can plainly see it on video. It looks just like a crown, ladies and gentlemen. It looks just like a crown in the heavens as they dance around each other. They look just like, well, in the Greek, you would call that a fedora. But ladies and gentlemen, let me riddle you something. With that in mind, now I'm going to read a passage from the book of Revelation that now it's probably going to make sense to all of you because – the Church of Philadelphia, using celestial somology, represents Uranus, and the message to Laodicea represents Neptune. 
before I read, I'm, I'm sorry to be reading so much scientific stuff, but you need to understand something that Pluto comes inside of Neptune's orbit. Here, let me read something for you. From 1979 to 1999, Pluto was the eighth planet from the sun. Now, in 1999, it slipped beyond Neptune to become the ninth. But Pluto's 248-year orbit around the sun takes it 17 degrees above and below the plane in which Neptune and the other planets travel. So their paths don't actually cross as they swap positions. Imagine if you are the sun in the middle of your backyard. The fence is Neptune's orbit. You toss a boomerang way out over your neighbor's house, and it comes back, being on both sides of your fence during its travels without hitting the fence. Activity like this can be frowned upon and, in Pluto's case, helped lead to its demolition. Most of you don't even know what I just stated, that yes, Pluto crosses in two it goes between Uranus and Neptune, but you already knew that if you would have already known that the seven churches were also the seven planets. Because I'll tell you this, this is why it says this. In the message to Philadelphia, one of the promises given is this, verse 11 of chapter 3. I'm coming quickly, behold, fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Now, I'm going to limit what I'm going to read about this, but what God just told you is that Neptune stole Uranus's crown. And when the king star, the sign of the Son of Man, begins its grand tack back into the inner solar system for some unknown event, which also leads to whatever's in the train or the course of this fifth gas giant that gets cast into the sea. Uranus and Neptune are going to swap places, and in doing so, God just said that he's going to give Uranus back its crown, and nobody's going to take it away. Now, I understand that's enough to blow your mind, but uh, the Lord, he is God, and he did write the New Testament in Greek, by the way, just so you all know. Um, you've all probably been lied to and said it was written in something else. No, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek uh, because it couldn't be written in anything else. But, but by the way, that event horizon was Alexander visiting Jerusalem because from that point forward… I hope you all know that the Roman records were in Greek as well, just so you know. But, ladies and gentlemen, with that in mind, you have to realize that science has now proved all of this. It's proved it. Now, there's something else very strange. About this tale that uh, – well, about Phaeton, about the strange occurrences with that. I've already pointed out that it's very strange that it didn't say that Zeus used a thunderbolt to strike down this 
this child of the sun. And I was wondering if Brian had anything he could elaborate on. Well, of course, modern science tells us that lightning can only fall down. So what can science tell us about – well, a lightning bolt between planets, I guess, or in this case, uh, most particularly um, – well, let's just say it, shall we? A lightning bolt between the sign of the Son of Man and this, uh, well, Phaeton, this son of the star, Helios. Because Helios is very particular. That, that, that means the glowing ball of fire. Um, Brian, do you have any hints or clues? And, and this is just not in the Greek. It's 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 – other places too. This strange phenomena of <laughs> lightning bolts between celestial objects. Is that even possible? And what has science to say about that, I guess? So you got the mic, Bri. Well, electric bolts between celestial bodies. Folks, if you're not familiar with this, um, because the listeners, at least, that have been around for quite a few years are going to remember that I had a uh, – one of my projects was entitled Lightning Divides the Bands of Time. There's a reason I chose that name. It is directly from the Bible because the Bible talks extensively about this. It is referred to as the electric universe. Now, once again, that is the uh, – they put the infamous – quotes around it saying theoretical even though the fact remains that a vast majority of their premises for their theory have once again been proven as fact I mean that's what happens when you can take out um, satellites and land them on comets for instance and do all kinds of other interesting little odds and ends nowadays now what would cause this kind of arc to happen between planets well once again now you're walking into part of that Stance within the electric universe, this is the arcs of plasma. Specific, uh, I don't know how to really explain that plasma properly, but it is essentially the conduit by which these electrical impulses are able to be spread throughout the universe. Now, your atypical standardized astronomical teachings are the vast majority of them just focus on the infamous uh, gravitational uh, patterns from Newtonian astronomy, for instance. But that's only part of the picture. You know, folks, you have to understand that, for instance, with this planet, we have a positive and a negative pole, which each has its own positive and negative magnetic polarities. That's what fuels the electromagnetic sphere that protects our planet. Now, they know full well, for instance, that, for instance, when we have these massive solar outbursts, if there's any part of that electromagnetic shield that is weakened, it causes more of those rays coming off the sun, depending on what makeup. Uh, there's all kinds of different obvious little factors that go into what it is that's hitting our planet when these happen 
But any spot where that electromagnetic shielding around our planet is weakened, more of those particles can get through. Now, we've had infamous events throughout history where parts of uh, the uh, power grid have been knocked offline because of these different bursts and so on. You know, and now they have a lot of obvious data and material concerning all these things as far as the different interactions between the sun and our planet. You know, once again, this is uh, another primary aspect that shows that our, the universe itself is living. It's on top of it, it's electric. You could almost to a certain strange degree, maybe even point to that plasma as being part of its lifeblood. I don't know what better terminology to use in that aspect, but yes, that's why when all of a sudden that thunderbolt is being thrown out, that's what you're dealing with. You know, and this is uh, where we've had, Matthew and I have been trying to figure out strange, complex problems that are happening in our universe as we speak. And I always tend to kind of look at things in a different way than he does because, well, obviously he had training in this department where me, I had to put things together with nuts and bolts and um, start learning and understanding these things in my own way. So the two different perspectives is what at times helps us come to a solution within a very complex topic at first glance. So when you have these factors within these electromagnetic properties within these wandering stars within these planets. You'll see the interaction going on back and forth between the two. So this also adds elements into the orbital parameters. So I'm going to hand it back over because that was what I was, you asked me to address it there. And we'll move with some of the other stuff that I um, have up here in the background in a bit. Okay, let me just say one thing. I, I don't agree with you that it would be the lifeblood. Um, I would say that it was the breath of life, and, and, and maybe I should bring everybody up to speed. Um, well, this is common knowledge, ladies and gentlemen, that when you're anemic, when you have low blood, they give you iron, correct? Of course, everybody knows this. That's what every doctor does. They'll prescribe you iron. And everybody knows that the reason that we must have blood and there's life in it is because it carries oxygen, water, and iron. There's only one big problem. That's rust, ladies and gentlemen. That's rust. And I mean rust in a matter of minutes. If you get like an iron skillet, put it out in the sun, uh, take one drop of water and put on it, oh, within an hour and 20 minutes, um, it's rust. So – need to understand that's really what – why the blood coagulates when you die because the breath is taken out of it or the oxygen. So in uh, that point, as far as this model is concerned, I would consider the lightning to be the uh, – to be the, the, the oxygen or the breath of it. Uh, but anyway uh, – you know, this is live, ladies and gentlemen. Me and Brian didn't discuss this beforehand, so I just found it interesting that 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 he would put it that way. Um, but I would take it that this has been recorded in ancient history. I would take it that 
somewhere, somehow, uh, this got into mythology. Uh, whether people wrote this down with characters or something like that, I would bet my bottom dollar that this is somewhere in history. Because, well, that's why Genesis chapter 6 plainly tells you uh, that the myths of the planet is to relay the original correct information concerning all these celestial events. It states that plainly in Genesis chapter 6. So, and perhaps, ladies and gentlemen, let's, well, let's just take a deep breath because like I said, this is on the fly. This is live. Me and Brian didn't discuss this before. But is a star that's been given a trumpet that uses the trumpet as a mechanism to blast his voice Utilizing celestial somology, would that be a bolt of lightning between and or emanating from one of the stars? Because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this event would only happen underneath, well, the circumstances where the electromagnetic field had obviously been magnified to a point… Well, to make the lightning go the wrong way. Lightning goes to ground. Everybody knows that. What mechanism could produce the electromagnetic field of a celestial body to have ground be one of its, well, brothers? So, let me ask… Brian, that before we get into a little bit of scripture, because I definitely want to uh, get to some scripture that Brian's obviously chomping at the bit to talk about his favorite book of the Bible. But, uh, Brian, do we have any of this in mythology where they somehow would have recorded, you know, lightning bolts between celestial objects? Has that occurred that you know of? Well, that is a constant that is all over the place. And to. Okay, folks, when you're dealing with this kind of electrical activity, you're not dealing with an up-and-down motion like you're dealing with on our planet. Now, the to give a little hint, I talked about the work I did way back upon a time on the pyramid. This will give you a slight idea of why I shredded every single piece of that work. When you understand plasma cosmology, now they started working with plasma here, obviously, in labs, scientists that were working with this began to realize something about this plasma. When they would send an electrical charge through it, there was no way to measure the amount of energy that was coming across in these plasma arcs. It was so dynamic and so great but on top of it to make matters worse they didn't really understand any way to contain it now i've you know many that are familiar with certain circles that are out there talking about this a lot have obviously heard of the work of tesla well what nikolai tesla had been doing for instance with one of his uh infamous uh free energy devices where he tapped into the national natural fabric of our creation he was sending that stuff obviously 
through uh, that plasma, plasma within our own Earth, and that's how this electricity was getting shot all over the place, where it would have been basically, nobody would have had to have paid for electricity, which, of course, you know, we all know how the capitalists would have viewed that. That's why he ended up dead, folks. This is not even up for debate. They know this is a fact that they did away with him. And between the Russians and the American uh, intelligence communities, they went out and took all of his work and hid it. And if you look into, like, for instance, Zero Point Energy, all the different free energy sources that they worked on here over time, anybody that's not working within the confines of the government, they will end up in a hole in the ground. It's that simple. Because, obviously, they're black gold and all the rest of it. And, of course, Matthew, yes. And that, again, goes back to I really would love to figure out where all that work is at that I did on this years back. Because this is one that uh, brings it quite to your attention with the petroglyphs. They refer to it here, for instance, on the Plasma Universe uh, plasmaverse.com because this is one branch within the electric universe what I'm talking about is the plasma they began to notice while they were working with these electrical plasma arcs that the images that were being created by this were causing this very same thing to appear that you find in these uh, petroglyphs all throughout the planet called, and they refer to it as the squatting man and you can find this on uh, plasmaverse.com slash verse squatterman dash plasma discharges dash petroglyphs dot html to give you an idea of what it is they discovered. Now, this this goes into so much more than we've definitely got time for here. But, I mean, even uh, in this, they have a uh, video clip here, which is a... If you sit down and watch the movie Symbols of an Alien Sky, which I believe they might have the full version of that up here. Uh, just give me a moment and see. Yeah, they still do have this over on the Thunderboltsproject.com. Uh, Symbols of an Alien Sky full documentary. And in part, to a degree, there are things that are being talked about in this uh, documentary that will have help you get a better understanding of what it is that Matthew and I have been referring to in this show. Now, I may not agree with uh, all of their ideas that they bring forward in this film, but nonetheless, this does kind of get your mind really to start thinking in the proper direction. Well, Brian, I just, I mean, I know that you'd sent me these before, and I couldn't remember the name of it, so I just put in electric universe plasma, and then I searched for images, and it took me right to it. But the, this is the same images that you showed me before, Brian. And, and look, ladies and gentlemen, this is real. It, the pictorial representation of a squatting man, but the very strange thing about it is he's got two planets to his side. Of course, that's what I see. But um, this – we've got proof of this in Arizona in uh, – well, particularly there's different ones in Tucson, Arizona, but we have them in the Alps, the United Arab Emirates. We have them in Italy. We have them in Venezuela. We have them in Spain, New Mexico, and uh, Guyana, and of course also Armenia. So uh, 
just enough to blow your mind. These plasma discharges, well, it looks like well, a squatting man with his arms out to his side with two twin planets right beside him. Um, absolutely amazing. Uh, but I put this – I passed this off to uh, Deborah Lazar. Uh, just get on Facebook and um, – Look through my friends list, and if you get her, she can she can get you everything she needs uh, and all of our archives and all that. Please don't ask me. Um, I would certainly just mess that up. So if you need our archives on anything that we've talked about before, just get with Deborah Lazar. She is our uh, – well, <laughs> she's my favorite sister. Um, she uh, – if you go over to her page, like I said, Deborah Lazar, uh, you'll know her picture because uh, uh, her her cover photo is a uh, – is the uh, – well, the heavens uh, representing uh, what's right over our head, and then her profile picture is that pyramid that's in Las Vegas with a lightning bolt. So uh, that's how you can tell you've got the right one, but Deborah Lazar. Um, I just put that link over there, but anyway, because um, I know I'm going to get questions about what Brian's talking about. Where did you talk about this before? I don't know, and Brian has no clue. Deb knows. She can get you that stuff. She 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 knows. She's the one that's taking care of me and Brian that way. So, Brian, with all that being said, uh, we got to get to your favorite book in the Bible. we got to get to Job. Um, and you have covered this before, the simple fact uh, – that this book speaks about everything we're talking about right now. So um, we have got 25 minutes left in the regular show. So I hope you got time to cover everything you wanted to cover about uh, your favorite book. Um, so jump right into that now uh, before I run us into overdrive because everybody knows I have a hard time shutting up. Uh -huh. So Brian, go ahead. Get to it. Well, I am going to add a little bit of a um, – hold on. Sorry, something fell on my keyboard there I had to take care of. Add a little bit something on here before we move into that. Um, also, folks, take note of, for instance, the ancient Mayan and their texts. The Popol Vuh specifically – is very eye-opening when you begin to look at this from a celestial point of view because, as you'll find out, they're telling this same story that's being told all over the world over and over and over again. You see, but there's something real interesting with the Mayan. You see, not only that, but when you begin to look at their varied calculations and uh, how their calendar works... You see, all those numbers that they use, they're all biblical numbers. Each and every single one of them. Numbers we've talked about here in the study on Revelation. 144, 432, 72, 36. Oh, yeah. And there is a reason for that. Pretty deep reason for that matter. But we will go back to that at some point in time. Now, concerning, yes, that past work I had done on this and uh, even getting a hold of those past uh, episodes that we did. I mean, I really wish I knew where I stored all that material because I've been even within discussions with uh, 
somebody that has worked deeply with Emmanuel Velikovsky's work in these departments where Emmanuel Velikovsky was trying to understand what in the world had happened with our universe. And he came up with uh, the theoretical standpoint of worlds in collision where he talks about Venus is causing a lot of disarray throughout the universe. And one of the books that I immediately picked up on the topic to see if I needed to even spend time with Velikovsky, I took a look at Laird Scranton's work on this because I've got a few of Laird's books here and I knew from going through his work that if you wanted to get to the bottom of some of the stuff going on in ancient times, he was the guy to look at concerning cosmology. And he's been revisiting over the course of the last year or so here some of these ideas of what he wrote about concerning Emmanuel Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision. And we've had quite a bit of uh, interesting talks back and forth. So I'm hoping sometime I can find that material again so I can repost that over to the website. That way people can get an idea of some of these things we're talking about here. And I mean, that's, that is another thing to quickly point out because it'll become crystal clear once we start talking about what's going on here in the biblical text. Now, obviously when we had all the events of this last September play out with uh, these people not being able to comprehend what was really going on in the heavens as to what it actually meant. And then they started running around, locking in the infamous rapture theories into this. With this happening, all of a sudden it brought everything into the uh, front and center concerning what the Bible actually has to say about astronomy. Because, of course, there was a lot of people going, no, you're not supposed to touch any of this. This is all astrology. Okay, no, 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 no. That's where people need to stop. What we're talking about is astronomy. And you have constellations being referred to all over in the Bible. You have even specific names underneath the English text, be it within the Greek or the Hebrew that'll point you at very specific planets, will point you at very specific stars and constellations. So folks, you have to keep that to bear because this is not astrology. Now, what some of these folks out there have turned it into with their perceptions on what's playing out in the heavens you could, to a degree, say some of them have gone a little bit over the deep end and have walked into that realm. With that in mind, there are very key critical things that God goes out of his way to explain to us to understand when you see certain set events happening in the heavens. This is what you're looking at as far as your isochronal eschatology happening because you will find many references to be able to look at everything and understand it in light of for instance like we did with this eclipse that is coming up here in July 
So, of course, you know, where are our most infamous spots? Well, that's that book of Job. You know, this goes hand in hand with what I'm working on in the background right now. Because to give everybody a little bit of a uh, a precursor to understand what it is I'm looking into right now. Well, it has everything to do with uh, our repetitions in history. Specifically, there were some things I began to notice going on with Daniel 11. And of course, when you're looking at the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel 11 specifically, you see, you have to have borders. You have to have north and south borders. The Hebrew is going to give you one set of data. The Greek gives you another set. That word for south is not only giving you coordinates on our planet, it's also giving you coordinates in the heavens. Because Matthew referred to Luke 11, verse 30. Well, when we get to Luke eleven thirty-one, you're going to find out that in that same spot, the Queen of the South is being referred to. Well, we also have celestial coordinates because this is coming up now here in Job 9, verse 9 for South. I'll read it first out of the King James so everybody can follow along, and then I'll bring it up in the English-Greek translations. As we go... Into Job 9, for instance. I'll start here at the top of the stanza, at the very beginning of Job. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how shall how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him, one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength who has hardened himself against him and has prospered, which removes the mountains, and they know not, which overturns them in his anger, which shakes the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble, which commands the sun and it rises not and seals up the stars, which alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea which makes Arcturus, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Now, let me bring up the translations here, uh, most notably from the Greek, from Bretons, who makes the Pleiades, Hesperos. Okay, folks, that's a reference to a specific planet. Arcturus and the Chambers of the South. And even once again in the Charles, Charles Thompson, who is the maker of the Pleiades and Hesperos and of Arcturus and the Chambers of Noctis, who does things great and unsearchable, things glorious and wonderful not to be numbered. Now, folks, the planet Venus is referred to be it depending on its morning aspect or its evening aspect, as Hesperos and Phosphoros. 
Matthew, I want to have you comment on that for a couple seconds. Or, well, not seconds, obviously, but for a moment here. Well, yes, ladies and gentlemen, when you take um, a look at that, you uh, should just know what it's exactly saying. And Brian is is correct that one of its aspects is morning, one of its aspects is the evening. And a lot of people have a hard time with this, that this would be in the Bible. But it is, because one is representation of the morning star, one is a representation of it as the evening star. And there's just no way around it. And yes, the Thompson comes right out and and tells you what's going on here. So, ladies and gentlemen, this locks in other prophecies that you need to be aware of. The Greek is literally coming out and telling you, um, well, ladies and gentlemen, what else do we know when these events begin to take place? Uh, what has God promised us? Ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope you realize that uh, right there in the book of Revelation, all right, there's no going around it. Um, the morning star is mentioned. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows what is stated in Revelation chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things, uh, you for the congregations. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, I know that's hard to believe that the Greek gives us that information, but it does. And it's important as to why uh, these things are being talked about, the way they're being talked about, and he's saying one or the other. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to look at that. Which one was which? Why would God be saying this in the book of Job? Now, you need to understand that you know, this is Job chapter 9, but there is more information, more data in uh, – uh, the other one that we've mentioned, Job chapter 9. So Job chapter 9 and 38, you've got them both in Greek, and you have them both in Hebrew. And oh my, ladies and gentlemen, wow, we're down to 12 minutes of live air of time. You just need to believe in your heart that what Brian just described, God already told you this, but... And I don't want to say that none of you wasn't believing the Bible. It's just you didn't realize that there was a whole, whole lot more of information there to believe than you thought before now. And God knew all of this thousands of years uh, before the uh, five-planet Nice model, or as we haven't even covered yet, they've expanded this to include exactly what Jupiter did because they've determined it math mathematically exactly what Jupiter did. It's called the Grand Tack. Ladies and gentlemen, the Grand Tack and the Nice model have separate pages on the NASA website, and it took them thousands of years to figure out what God had already written.
but that's how complicated it is. So Brian has brought to you the Greek, so you need to take a look at everything he's quoted, but take a, a first look. Please do this. Please please try to get into the Greek of Job 9 and, and 38. And when you do these things, it, well, it's going to help you not be afraid because God's doing these things to protecting you. And the sign of the Son of Man has got to have a grand tack again to protect us from this fifth gas giant. And we don't need NASA to speculate for us. There's two chapters in Job to tell us exactly what is to come. This is what I refer to as a future fact. It's not a historical fact. It's a future fact. This is what is going to happen. Because God is many things. But he is not a joker because he is no respecter of persons. He's just going to tell you the way that it is. So uh, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, you need to realize that uh, certain things are promised in Revelation chapter 2 concerning the morning star as well. You might want to take a serious gander at it because… Ladies and gentlemen, those verses are loaded around it. Especially when he speaks about knowing the depths of Satan. You, you just – ladies and gentlemen, he's telling you astronomical information. Um, Brian, back to you. Boy, we're cutting it close now. We've got nine minutes left of live airtime, Brian. Well, this even boils into – Job 38, for instance. I mean, to literally uh, break it down, this whole chapter is literally talking about these topics in ways that are expressing so much in the Hebrew. Because the Hebrew, you know, I had spent, I mean, good grief, I can't even remember, Matthew. It must have been a good three weeks re, uh, retranslating properly breaking down these Hebrew words to get to the bottom of what it was really saying. And it's exactly talking about everything we've discussed in this episode. But, you know, for instance, that specific uh, verse I just mentioned in Job 9. You can go back over and you look at Job 38, verse 31. And once again, I have brought up King James here first. To give everybody an idea so they can read along at what it states here. Canest thou bind the sweet influence of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canest thou bring forth the Maseroth in its season or canest thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest you the ordinance of heaven? Canst you set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canest thou lift up thy voice to the clouds? that abundance of waters may cover you. Canest thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here we are. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts or who hath given understanding to the heart? 
who can number the clouds in wisdom, or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together. I'll stop there just for the time being. You go up in the things that are happening here prior to this. For instance, 38 verse 25. Who hath divided a water course for the overflowing of waters or as a way for the lightning of thunder to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man. Of course, we keep going here. Now, little history about the book of Job real fast. Because some of the people out there will point out this is the oldest uh, text itself in the Bible. Atypically speaking, they would be correct in that. <coughs> Through the version of the Septuagint, you get a little bit of extra information with some additional chapters that's going to point you to the fact that this was written during the time of Esau's sons. Now, in my house, there's something that goes on that really completely confuses me because people here seem to not like this book for some reason, which baffles my mind because they kind of get confused when I ask them, do you comprehend that the entirety of the fabric of creation, understanding it, is all over in the book of Job? Because it really is. We could do in-depth studies of this book alone that could go on for years on end. That's how much is literally in here. So many of these details that we're speaking of in tonight's program tie right directly into the book of Job. So I would state, go through the book of Job in the midst of this study because your perception is really going to start, your eyes will really begin to be opened to what it is we're referring to. Now, another spot I wanted to bring up too because we just brought that uh, verse up there in Job 9 that had Hesperos in it. Now, of course, Matthew made mention of the fact that, of course, we've got this uh, coming up in the book of Revelation twice with Revelation 2 verse 28 and I will give to him the morning star and then we have in uh, Revelation 22 verse 16 I Jesus sent my angel to testify these things to you over the assemblies I am the root and offspring of David the bright and morning star but of course if we want to see this Somewhere else, well, this is going to come up in Isaiah 14, verse 12. Now, of course, the King James states something a little bit different here. And people throughout the ages here have somehow made this name to be referring to Satan with Lucifer. And that's, folks, Lucifer is not Satan. I'll read this in the King James, for instance, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Now, if you take this over to, this will be Green's literal, for instance, it'll state, O shining star, son of the morning, 
how you have fallen from the heavens. You weakening the nations, you are cut down to the ground. The same goes with the NASB basically gives a definition that is essentially the same thing. So this is where, you know, I brought up Velikovsky and his uh, theoretical standpoint on this as far as something going on that was a little bit different. Well, Venus leaving its course in the midst of these cyclical events that are spoken of all over the Bible, folks. That's how I was able to actually lock in a specific timeline as to when these cosmic cosmic catastrophes kept happening because once I was able to set the proper chronology in course in the Bible, going through and finding these cosmic catastrophes, I could actually mathematically calculate it and go look to see what it was that was coming through our universe that was causing these things. And that's in that riddle of Phaeton's chariot ride. That's what that specific piece is talking about, is that chronology and that event that kept repeating. But there's other events, and it's the very planetes, wandering stars, leaving their course, the planets. And Matthew's done extensive work on Isaiah 14, so I'm just going to hand that back over to him. Well, um, I did extensive work on that one chapter, huh? <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's well let let's talk about this verse. Let's first uh, let me switch over to the um, Britain translation of the Septuagint. Incorrect. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. But it says, "How has Lucifer, that rose in the morning, fell from heaven?" He that sent orders to all the nations is crushed to the earth. Thompson, um, well, he does an equally poor job with the beginning of the verse. How is Lucifer fallen from heaven? He who is harbinger of the morning, he who sent messages to all the nations is trampled down unto the earth. Both of those are incorrect because they do not say what it literally says. It literally says Hesperus there. Now, the more important thing is is that you were just told something very important that is being absolutely looked over. Um, the simple fact that the messages are messengers to the nations. This, is, this verse is directly referring to well, this event, this sign, being a harbinger to the message to the seven churches, which are also, well, like I already stated, the seven planets are the seven churches using celestial somology. So, yes, they're also physical churches, by the way, that are all in the land. In the midst of the rivers, by the way, just just so you all know. Uh, Yeah, Christ didn't send any message to the Holy Land. He sent them only to the seat of the Assyrian false prophet. So we need to do some 
history on that as well. But, ladies and gentlemen, you, you need to realize um, the gravity of the wool that's been pulled over your eyes because um, both Britain and Thompson would only have used Lucifer here due to pressures put upon them to translate the verse in thus manner because they were going to starve to death if they didn't have some kind of support, just so you know. So well, that's, of course, why my son um, <laughs> wants me to begin translating the entire Greek Bible. And then when I'm done with that, he wants me to go back through and retranslate uh, the entire Hebrew Bible, which is the Masoretic Old Testament coupled to the Delich New Testament. Uh, oh, and while I'm at it, he wants me to key this all to Strong's, and lastly, of course, to make sure I put all the verb tenses, the all the word tenses in there too for everybody. I'm sure I can do that. Oh, probably about my, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, 490th birthday, maybe I'd have time to do all that. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's look at verse 13 in the Thompsons, the very next verse. Thou indeed didst say in thy heart, I will ascend up into heaven above the stars of heaven. I will place my throne. I will seat myself in a lofty mountain on the lofty mountains which face the north. I'm not going to touch this right now because we're already in overdrive, and you need to know that um, there's a few things that NASA has figured out about this fifth gas giant just this year. And one of them uh, is that it's on a very high orbital inclination. And what that means is that its orbit around the sun's not circular. And it is elevated from the orbital path massively, as a matter of fact. So this orbital path, it's, it's not like a circle, ladies and gentlemen. It's like an egg. And, well, that's kind of exactly what Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 just said. And... Like I've already stated, uh, he is likened to this because he's on the opposite side of the heavens. Uh, God really was telling you the truth when there is one end of the heavens to the other. Um, you need to realize that I already mentioned that, that uh, the interstellar wind has moved into the sign of the restrainer, which is exactly opposite in the heavens of the sign which they say the ninth planet lies in and uh, – that's the sign of the strike per Micah. Well, per, I mean, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, all of them. So uh, Brian is sending me some links here uh, referring to verse 28 in this chapter. Let's get him to elaborate, and then we've got to wind this down. We've only got 10 minutes left of overdrive. So Brian, please elaborate. Well, folks, take note of the fact that as you go through this prophecy concerning 
what is taking place in Isaiah 14. All right, this is going to bring you to another aspect in this chronology concerning these uh, cyclical cosmic catastrophes. Because what I'm about to uh, bring up here, folks, I was able to get in and find the root, even calculate what had transpired here, not to even mention, oh, yes, folks, our calendar changed when this happened. And it's encoded in the alphanumerics in the infamous uh, pillars in the temple. But when you get down to 14, verse 28, the burden was in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, for the rod of your striking is broken because a viper comes forth from the root of a snake, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, folks. A fiery flying serpent. Folks, when you look into the sky and you see something flying through the sky that would look like a fiery flying serpent, what would you immediately see? Okay, a comet coming in, a meteorite coming in. You're getting the exact same description. Now, let me continue with what always happens in tandem when these events play out in the heavens. And the firstborn of the poor shall eat, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill your root with famine, and it shall kill your remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city. Philistia is melted away, all of you, for a smoke comes from the north. And not one is alone in his ranks. What then shall one answer to the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall trust in it. All right, folks. Understand this. This is bringing up King Ahaz. The events being described in this prophecy did play out right around the corner with Hezekiah's 10 steps or 10 steps of Ahaz. And that's where I brought in because this is quite some time back. Actually, we talked about this fairly in depth, as a matter of fact, on one of the Iron Show, a couple of the Iron Show programs, I believe. But what they found a little while back here is the royal seal of Hezekiah comes to light. And folks, this seal, which I just posted um, over to, for those of you on Facebook, it's on the End Time Tribune Media page right now. But if you look at this specific seal in here, folks, this is describing to you Ahaz's 10 steps. This is Winston Rekhareb. His forces were killed. And what they describe in here is the one that's had everybody baffled because it comes up in Herodotus and numerous other texts that talks about the vo these rats coming in and chewing them up and doing this, that, and the other thing. Well, folks, when you have a celestial event like that play out, they know full well that these plagues are being brought into the universe by these celestial interlopers, by these comets, by these meteorites, these things burning up in the heavens. All of a sudden, you see those rats being involved in that 
event with Sennacherib at the time of Hezekiah, then you get the seal that is speaking of what? It's the Ten Steps. The Ten Steps, so much so, caught the Chaldeans' eyes that they sent an ambassador over to Hezekiah to ask him what in the world just transpired. At that point in history, as time progressed, they had to start recalculating the calendar. That's where that word comes from, is them having to call out when the specific body showed up, when the moon was showing up, or at what time the sun, and where it would be. They had to start recalculating all this. This is all documented throughout history. The pillars in the temple. You'll find out that the pillar levels change. The alphanumerics encodes to you 365 for 365 days and 360 days. Now, with the work I'm doing right now, you see, I'm going through the section within Middle Ages history, which obviously is going to start there with the Byzantine Empire. Now, folks, there are major cyclical events that keep playing out that are all connected into this. Because when you had all these plagues and famines breaking out, those plagues were part and parcel with major celestial events happening at the same time, with comets and meteorites bringing all of this into our atmosphere. We talked about the green comets in the past. Folks, almost every comet that keeps showing up over the course of these last few years has been the same color as that infamous, what translates to really technically speaking, a green horse. It's the same color. Pay attention that Ebola keeps breaking out nonstop in Africa, and you're going to start noticing that it always breaks out part and parcel with these events. All right, handing it over to you, Matthew. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are down to three minutes, so we're going to make this quick. Um, tomorrow, my son and I will be releasing the fourth Christian conspiracy theory. You can only hear that on the Fringe Radio Network. Um, it's being provided to uh, Johnny as a gift. Um, so uh, you might want to go check that out. And you need to uh, do your research on this. It is the Nice model and the Grand Tech model. Take a serious look at those and uh, come to the understanding that the Bible's telling you a whole lot more information than you afore probably realized. So, uh, with that in mind, um, you can find Brian on Twitter and uh, Facebook, In uh, Time Tribune Media. Um, you can find uh, me on Facebook, uh, Matthew Miller. Um, what else do I want to? That's that's just about all I want to say. Um, you might want to check out the Facebook pages because Brian and I share uh, information exclusively there. So you might want to check that out. But uh, um, please go check out uh, Christian Conspiracy Theory. And let me just say to the private groups already, yes, one of you can record it and then put it in your private forums no matter what uh, country you're in. Just go ahead and do that. That's fine. Um, doesn't matter. Um, 
you know, no, no, no need for the entire group, especially the primary South Korean uh, group there. I mean, that would be like 10,000 downloads from just, just you. So just go ahead and do it like you usually do it. Uh, download it once and put it to your private forum. Um, wow. All right. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen. Brian and Matthew signing off. God bless. Godspeed. <laughs>